0: So, as keeping with my new trend, I want to make it nice and clear that this is one of those outsider's perspectives ruminations. I am not a fan of the Tomb Raider series, and I never have been. Uh, I played the original, obviously, back when it came out, and I played... You know, I don't actually remember which one. <laughs> it was one of the later ones, when they would started doing actual you know, 3D bitmapping, and I deliberately avoided the 2013 reboot. Um... Not. Let me explain that a little bit. When the 2013 reboot came out, I was like, "Ah, oh, okay, that looks interesting. Um, and then I saw the actual gameplay, and I was like, nope, that is not for me. Uh, I, I bet a lot of you know what I'm talking about. There was something weirdly brutal and visceral about the 2013 reboot, and that's just not my thing. You know, it's just not something I enjoy. So I was just like, nope, walking away from that one. And then this one came out and I barely noticed it because it was, it, you know, it was like, all right, whatever. It's a franchise I'm not paying attention to because I'm not a fan of the franchise. Now, please do not mistake that for me saying, I hate Tomb Raider because that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's not my thing. Now, we've gotten that boilerplate out of the way. Let me just go ahead and say that, God damn it, why was this game so fun? I actually had a ball playing this game. What the hell? Um, this is going to be a short rumination. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that right now. But. I really loved the gameplay, so I, I don't know, like, there's this whole genre called action-adventure, and it's pretty much the generic genre, right? It's the genre that you just say, when well, you don't know what else to label a game. Like, the Uncharted series is usually qualified as an action-adventure game. And speaking of which, I wish I'd known how the gameplay of this game was going to be, because then I would have scheduled this rumination to come out right alongside the Uncharted rumination last year, because of obvious reasons. I, I didn't realize there was going to be this much similarity between the two. It reminded me a lot of playing through Uncharted 4, but there was another game this reminded me a lot of, the Metal Gear Solid series. And I'm not just saying that because there was a greater emphasis on stealth elements in this game, although there were, and I think they worked really well, uh, actually having the additional stealth mechanics made this a lot more fun. Anybody who knows me and has watched me play games know I actually really enjoy a good stealth game, and I would love doing the kind of, you know, never being seen kind of a playthrough. I did this in DSX Mankind Divided. I did this in Dishonored and Dishonored 2. So, you know, it's the kind of thing I legitimately enjoy doing. But, um... So so the, the added stealth mechanics and the added... Uh, tools in your arsenal really helped to elevate playing through this game lots of options lots of abilities Uh, there were also several sections of entire maps which felt for lack of a better term very metroidy in the sense of you know explore expand do the little jumping puzzle sections and then you know you get to this area and and they're like well there's a wall over there or there's like this thing that it looks like you could climb across but you can't or there's like this specific type of locked door or whatever. And so you just keep, you know, keep progressing until you get to the point where you find you know the specific type of lockpick or you find the right kind of bow and arrow setup, whatever, in order to be able to let you progress. It wasn't full Metroidvania, but I did feel that that added a little bit and made the backtracking a little more enjoyable in several cases, most notably in the earlier stages. Now, I also liked the, for lack of a better term, the way they did the camping mechanic where you sit down and craft and set up your inventory and all that fun stuff. Not just because the fact that it was a nice way to do it, but because almost every time I do it, and I'm still not sure exactly what was triggering this, but there would either be, like, a a pseudo, an audio cutscene, or there would be just internal monologuing from Lara about what she's thinking about or what she's going through or whatever, a good way to give us an insight into her thoughts at any given moment. Probably my personal favorite one was where she sat down and we suddenly start hearing a guy's voice start talking, and it's her dad explaining some things to her, and eventually leading to a revelation about the Trinity. That, that was good stuff. I like that. It's a good way to get exposition across and weave it naturally into the gameplay because the player can pretty much completely ignore that stuff if they want to. You know, And they don't even need to camp for the most part, uh, depending on how you're playing. But if you're choosing to and you're, you're already doing something, and this is the important part, the player is actually engaged while exposition is happening. So the, you know as I'm sorting and crafting and, and doing all this stuff there is stuff going on in the background which is helping me to to understand a little bit more about the character a little bit more about the setting etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So good stuff, good stuff. I like that. Um I I had a weird so I I want I talked about the stealth gameplay. Um so first of all I want to mention that one of the things that always struck me is a little bit disparate about the 2013 reboot, because I never played the game, but I have seen quite a bit of it, obviously since I've seen a lot of death in it. Uh, One of the things that struck me as weird is one of the elements they were going through for tonally in the 2013 reboot is that you were this you know, barely competent, oh god, I'm I'm dying, I'm dying, you know, constantly barely able to do anything, basically to emphasize the fact that she was green, that she was just starting her career as the Tomb Raider, right? That makes sense. But then in gameplay, you were a death machine. Now, I'm a little bit burned on this because a lot of the people I saw playing Tomb Raider 2013 were speedrunners who are really good at the game. But there was a little bit of a disconnect there uh, tonally, I felt, that is removed in this game. Because it makes a little bit more sense that Lara can take out these huge swaths of these elite mercenaries working for Trinity when a lot of the options for doing so are stealth-related. So in other words, rather than just charging in and dodge, dodge, smack, dodge, dodge, smack, it's sneak, 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 dive underwater, put on the brass mask, grab someone, drag him underwater, sneak out, go around to the other guy. You know, it it made it feel more believable, which made it more immersive, which increased my enjoyment of the work overall. I also very much loved the... There was a mechanic that I wish more games had... And it's, it's basically cheating, but it helps people like me. If anybody knows, I have sometimes I have problems visually distinguishing things because of a very partial colorblindness problem I have. And so with certain games and with certain movies and shows as well, sometimes I literally just don't see something um, Anybody who's watched my streams can verify this. There's sometimes where I'm walking along and someone's like, why did you walk into that guy? It's because I literally didn't see them. It it didn't register. It's one of the reasons I praise video games that have such clear, distinct visual design, so that even someone who's an idiot like me can tell what's going on. So there were a few times in this game, because obviously it's going for realism, which means grays and browns for the most part, uh, there were times where I'm like, uh, and there's, you could do the little, oh, I need to go interact with that. You know, basically the focus mode thing. I forget what they called it, but the focus mode thing to be like, aha, I could go interact with that thing up there, calling my attention to the general direction I need to go in. And I didn't need to do that. It just helped me when I, when I needed help. So that was a nice little touch too. I also want to comment on something kind of weird. The... I mentioned a parallel of this to Uncharted 4. I would call this game almost the inverse of Uncharted 4 as opposed to the opposite because both games have a very similar approach to the gameplay, the action, puzzle, platforming and the exploration and the combat relatively, obviously there's significant differences between the two specifically but relatively you could see the similarities in game design philosophy between the two but Uncharted 4 was very different in two distinct ways. Uncharted 4 was very story-heavy. Lots of cutscenes, very character-focused and character-centric, very down-to-earth, which is the second thing. Uncharted 4, as I mentioned, and I I don't want to spoil anything, but basically threw the supernatural elements out the window. Uncharted 4 was all a real-life kind of a tale. By contrast, Tomb Raider, Rise of the Tomb Raider, I should say, has a huge emphasis on gameplay. Like, there were sections... And now, this is okay for me, because, again, I was really liking the gameplay. But there were sections where I'm just going through, and it's like, yeah, I did. Jump, jump, climb, climb up here, go up here, okay? Unlock this thing. Little radio message. All right, keep going. Go, go down here, walk over here. Oh, what's this? Oh, maybe I'll explore this. Okay, go fight. Oh, go fight. Okay, sneak, 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 sneak. And 15 minutes have passed with not a single bit of story. Now, I it took me a bit for even noticing this, but this was a common trend. Huge swaths of gameplay and then a little bit of story, and then a huge swath of gameplay, and a little bit of story. It was pretty much the exact, like I said, it's the inverse of what Uncharted 4 was doing, with huge swaths of story, which were even weaving into gameplay, and then pure gameplay, and then huge swaths of story. I'm not saying that was a bad thing, but it was a very interesting tonal perspective on it. And I'm curious, again, speaking from the outsider's perspective, how common this approach is to the Tomb Raider series in general. <sighs> Brings me to the next thing I want to talk about. Which is the so I the Tomb raiding type of game, you know obviously we all know that Tomb Raider was in many ways inspired by Indiana Jones, and that's cool, you know i'm I'm a fan of Indiana Jones except for the second movie and the fourth movie. If you're a fan of two of four movies, can you call yourself a fan at that point? I mean, the show was okay. I did like several of the games, especially the LucasArts games. Those were good stuff. But, you know, Atlantis, anyone? Uh, I'm old. What do you want from me? Point being, I do like that kind of thing. You know, I, do, I don't know what the proper terminology is to refer to that genre. The, yeah, let's go and explore and action and jumping and, and character and, and ancient histories and deep puzzles of, of, of ancient empires and all that stuff, and there's usually a supernatural tint. Almost every time there's some kind of supernatural tint, whether it's spiritual or aliens or magic or whatever. And you notice they don't actually explain what it is in this game, although I have a theory about that, which I'll get to in a second. Um, but I do like that overall approach of things. It's actually one of the things that drew me to Uncharted, as I mentioned earlier. But I bring this up because... I'm kind of curious when this really became a thing in video gaming, because if you think about it, if you just sit back and ponder for a moment the types of film, television, comic book, and book genres or franchises that would clearly, cleanly, and easily translate to an interactive medium like a video game, this would be at the towards the top of the list actually being the person, you know, actually being indie, running around and, and dodging the things and shooting the guy and then oh god quick and get in the tank and punching the Nazi. That sounds awesome, right? It's such a natural mesh that I find myself wondering why we don't actually have more of these, if anything. And I mean obviously we do have the Tomb Raider series, but there aren't a lot of games that really capitalize on this kind of market. I do find myself wondering why. Now, of course, I could also make a DuckTales joke here, because as we all know, the original Tomb Raider was Scrooge frickin' McDuck, but, you know, I've made that point clear before, and I don't need to rehash it. Let's talk about the story a little bit. So I already kind of mentioned this, so let's just dive into this. Let's talk about the Divine Stone. Uh, One of the things I find very interesting about the Divine Stone is it is clearly supernatural, and yet mostly unexplained. There's that one little tidbit, you know, the painting that Lara's looking at, and nothing is said outright. She's just like, well, that looks like... Oh, but that couldn't be, or something like I forget how exactly how she phrases it, but she says something like that. It made it feel to me like this was an ancient alien race thing, that there was some super-advanced group, whether it was our own people, you know, Atlanteans or whatever, or if this was actual aliens who had left these kind of artifacts and this kind of pseudo-magical, meta-technological stuff behind on our planet to allow for these kind of supernatural na- elements to exist within the setting. And I kind of got that impression from that and from the way they were presenting it, especially when they actually showed the divine stone and how it worked. It very much to me felt like the kind of thing that was a deliberately crafted for this purpose type thing. Now, it is worth noting that Jacob himself flat out says that the divine stone is not actually divine. And based on his backstory and history, we can assume that what he means by that is it was not religiously divine. It was not spiritually divine. In other words, of the three most common sources of the supernatural, which are, you know, spiritual, alien, magical, he was trying to remove the spiritual side of things, which basically leaves magical and, uh, I suppose technological is another one, but you know what I mean. So that means alien and magical. But one of the things I find interesting is no evidence is ever given for that, for why it is Jacob says that this is not divine. It's just something he presumes. It's something that he has come to the conclusion of. Now, granted, he's more familiar with the damn thing than anyone. He's had, what, like 700 years or something like that to to interact with this thing and to... to well, I shouldn't say... not. Obviously, he hasn't spent 700 years tinkering with it, but you know what I mean. He has had 700 years of experience and practice and knowledge and wisdom to come to his own conclusions on the matter. He has also abused it we see several signs. I like this because they never really call this out overtly, but there's several signs of like purging heretics, for example, you know, burning people at the stake, or uh, oppression of enslavement, or very harsh you know, uh, justices that kind of a thing. There are several hints of just how dark and dystopian his little empire of the Katesh, Well, I guess they would, they would call them the Katesh, but you know what I mean. His little stronghold his fiefdom actually was and we get the very strong impression he even flat out mentions you know, i'm not proud of it he says when he but that's only in reference to lying to his own people for all these years i get the strong impression he's the kind of person who was a villain and then was given the chance that most villains are not given the ability to spend some time really thinking about his villainy really thinking about what they have accomplished and deciding to change about that, trying to shift away from the villain's role. You get the impression that he's the kind of person that, for example, Anna, or Anna, if you prefer, could actually become given a few centuries. And maybe it wouldn't take that long. I don't know. Um, But I also bring this up because... I, I, I mention this because it is my opinion that Jacob is biased about this thing, about his presumption that it is not spiritual. And I'm willing to accept that on face value. But the point is, he's seen what this thing does to the deathless and the cost it takes from from each resurrection. And he has seen what can happen from people who try to abuse its power. Again, personally, right? So any person who looks at this this thing, which has caused a lot of misery, is probably going to be negatively inclined towards it, right? Make sense? So I don't think we can just automatically say, ah oh, it's not spiritual. I think that Jacob doesn't know any better than anyone else. Although that does bring me an interesting question, and please feel free to share if this is listed somewhere in the DLCs, because I didn't actually play the DLCs, or if this is somewhere in the Ancillary Works that I missed, because I know there's a comic book series, and I think there's a book as well. Why didn't Jacob turn into a standard Deathless? That's one of the things that just kept bugging me the whole game. You know, they've got the the prophet, right? Oh, he shall never die, blah, blah, blah. And he looked into the stone, right? And it granted him this power. But he doesn't rot, basically. He doesn't lose his humanity like the others. In fact, he gains frickin' healing powers. Why is he different? To my knowledge, they never actually explain that. Now, if they do truly never explain that, I then posit you a question. Why do you think that is? Now I actually have my own answer on this one. Uh, actually, I have two answers on this one. This is pure wild theory crafting, and who knows? I may be shoving my foot as hard into my mouth as I can on this one because it may there may just be an answer that's really mundane and dumb. Let me go ahead and say that for me, as I already said, I think this is some kind of alien influence thing, a either magically or technologically crafted artifact that was left here along with others. Uh, for whatever purpose, by some ancient race, whether it was literally aliens or it was just sufficiently advanced humans. One of the two, right? So that's my general theory for the Divine Stone's origins. And I've already given my reasons for why that is. I think that either from a, let's call it a sentimental perspective, or from a more mundane scientific perspective, Jacob fit the pattern. That most people, when exposed to this divine energy, whatever the hell it actually is, you know, it's, it's gamma radiation or whatever, right? I, I know it's not literally gamma radiation, but you get the point. You know, When they're exposed to this energy and this power, most people, it basically allows them to, to reconstitute, a, a form of perfect resurrection. Uh, we even have that little bit of uh, one of the the journal-type things that they scatter throughout the game, which is good stuff, by the way, about the guy who was doing the experiments. You know, he crushed the head of the guy, and, and, and the Deathless actually... But then later on, the same Deathless fully came back, fully reconstituted, and even remembered the incident. So we're seeing this is a form of, of truly supernatural resurrection, of, of complete reconstitution of the original core and yet it takes a heavy toll by either claiming their soul or their mind, depending on if you believe more in the spiritual side or the mental side of the setting, so that when the, each time the deathless come back, they are less and less, right? But if you fit the pattern, then you basically gain the benefits with none of the detriments. Because we know Jacob has died more than once, and yet he hasn't lost any of himself, And of course he has those abilities to heal, and for the most part he seems to get all of the supernatural abilities, strength, agility, etc., without actually having any of the detriments of being effectively a zombie. And again, I think either that pattern is because he is the person with the right kind of, for lack of a better term, soul or mind, or because he literally fits a certain predisposition pattern, like literally there's something about his DNA or his lineage or the construction of his of his synapses that allows him to properly adapt to this energy or the energy to adapt to him. Now, all of this is just blind speculating, and I, I'm looking forward to hearing all you guys tell me how stupid I am, but I wanted to talk about this because it was one of the things that engaged me most about this. In fact, I actually only have three more points to talk about in total. Four, excuse me, four. I actually forgot about that. I want to talk about the Trinity, which is the fourth, ironically. Um, I want to talk about the Trinity because I found them kind of engaging as a villainous group. In many ways, the Trinity felt to me like what I like to call an Act One villain, which is, you know, a significant threat, of course, but ultimately only significant in a smaller scope or scale, the kind of thing that you're supposed to overcome as, like, training in order to get ready for whatever the real threats are. Considering the fact that we still don't have a sequel to this game, although there are rumors cycling like crazy about it, even right now, when I'm recording this, which is, uh, you know, before this video goes live, so maybe by the time this video goes live, they will have actually confirmed that, but... There's still rumors in sequ- of, of, of a sequel coming out. Of course, the DLCs, I'm told, have expanded things considerably. And we do have that little stinger at the end. And there's that little bit of lore from another one of those journal things about how these guys, the Trinity, actually report to the Vatican. So either the Vatican is in charge of the Trinity, or the Vatican is a, is a completely separate, or someone in the Vatican is in a completely separate organization, which is even above the Trinity. But one of the things I also like about that whole first act villain thing is even if the Trinity as an overall organization is our major enemy, our specter of the series, if you will, we only fight one battalion of it in this game. And a lot of the people we fight aren't even Trinity members. They're just mercenaries that have been hired by them. And by the way, that was a nice touch as well, the, the humanizing of several of the mercenaries and how they're just doing their jobs. And of course, the fact that we can overhear several Trinity people who are talking about how they can't wait to go murder all these people once they're done. You know, once we have the Divine Stone, we won't need these guys anymore, right? <laughs> Anyways, so... uh So yeah, I I like that presentation, especially since it it is mentioned flat out that Constantine is only in charge of one battalion of this organization, which has incredulous amounts of funding and resources and power, overall political power and political affluence, as it should. I mean, it's it's basically the modern-day iteration of the Knights Templar, so that makes a degree of sense. Which brings me to speaking about Constantine, who I have the least to talk about. I do have to say that I feel bad for Constantine in a strange way. He is someone who has been manipulated like crazy by basically everyone around him. Obviously, the most overt example is his own sister, Anna, who deliberately kind of provoked this messianic complex within him. I mean, God's sakes, she was even making him think he had, uh, oh God, what's the term for that? Uh, the bleeding thing that's like, that's holy. I, I can't actually think of the term of it. Now I'm gonna get like 15 comments telling me the term of it. Oh, I hate it when I, I can't think of a name or a term, but you know what I'm talking about. She was even tricking him into thinking that he had some kind of divine connection and that this it was his destiny and blah, blah, blah. And of course, she was all doing it for her own ends. And something about that really makes that just horribly messed up and insidious. Let me make this clear. Constantine is not a good person. But his motivations for everything he does are surprisingly pure. He does this out of love for his sister and his devotion to his faith. Now, obviously, doing something out of devotion to your faith has been the cause of some of the most horrifically evil, monstrous stuff in human history. So you can kind of already see where I'm going with this. But what I like about Constantine is he is someone you can sympathize with while still hating. You can see where he's coming from. I and mean, I imagine most of you out there, especially those of you who've played this game, can look at him and say, yeah, I totally get that. I mean, I'm very devoted to several of my family members. The idea of going on this crusade for them is something that I would probably accept without hesitation because of the way I feel about my loyalty to them. But he's still a monster. He is still a messed up individual who's more than willing to be cruel and, and just generally evil in the way he approaches himself and the way he approaches everyone around him. And again, it is worth noting that one of the major goals of Constantine and the Trinity as a whole is to purge the damn planet in whatever manner they see fit, whatever they believe to be unclean or unpure or whatever. I mean, God's sakes, we know what the Crusades were, right? Yes, I know the Crusades were actually a very complicated series of situations which weren't primarily about religion, but there were a lot of people who joined those Crusades with the explicit intent of purging someone that they believed was wrong. I I don't want to get into a controversial topic here, but I, I don't think I need to explain why let's go get rid of all the heretics, even if heretics don't even apply in a religious sense. You know, let's get rid of all the sinners. Is not a good thing. Which brings me, of course, to Anna. Now, Anna is also very interesting to me because I have to admit, I called from a very early on period that she was basically the actual villain. I mean, obviously there's the Vatican thing and the Trinity thing and whatever the hell is actually going on behind the scenes. But within the scopes of this game, Anna is the villain. She is the specific core problem with this game and, and, and the, the, the main antagonist for Lara, the main foil for Lara, and the one who has been provoking and manipulating and hurting basically everyone involved. Anna is a good example of that, old, of that old saying of even Hitler loved his mama. If you don't know what that means, it means that too often fiction will portray someone who is villainous as not caring about anyone or anything except for themselves. More believable villains. In this case, I would call Anna a two-note villain, as I like to call it. In this case, Anna is someone who obviously does care. She admits this flat out. She actually cared about Lord Croft, Lara's dad. She actually did love him. She she didn't intend to. It just kind of naturally happened. But Anna is still someone who is an extremely evil individual who does many horrible things, including manipulating her own brother into starting a holy crusade in order to purge the planet. Oh, and to cure her of her own disease, of course. So that's nice. I find myself thinking that Constantine is the kind of person who... He can be the face for an organization, the Hitler, if you will, but Anna's the kind of person who's actually manipulating things behind the scenes, and therefore, I feel personally that there's really only two perspectives on Anna. And please feel free to share which one you think is predominant. Either Anna is solely selfless, selfish, self-centered, in other words, to the point where all she cares about is herself, her immortality, and her fixing her illness, or... She legitimately believes in the crusade and the cause of purging and ethnically cleansing or whatever the hell it is that she's actually into, along with salvaging her life because of the whole immortality thing. And I'm curious what you think is more dominant in her mindset, because both of them make her an atrocious monster. Oh, funny little side note. One of the last things she admits to Lara is that she will not kill someone she loves, that she is not the one who killed Lara's dad. We still don't know who actually did it, but she was willing to kill Lara. And uh, that says all that needs to be said, I think. And I think that's the best way to explain her character. I, I guess I should give my opinion. I think she's primarily selfish. Someone who claims to love someone but is willing to, it, but has no love or affection for that person's beloveds to the point of being willing to kill them, manipulate them, all that fun stuff, It's not a good person. I would argue that isn't even love at that point. Just my opinion. Which brings me to Lara, of course. Interestingly enough, I found Lara to be the most interesting character in this work. Now, I do have to admit, there was something I found to be a negative in this game, and that's the fact that she wouldn't shut up. (laughs) I know that's a weird thing to complain about, but... Maybe was, maybe I had a setting wrong somewhere, uh, but as I'm going, I mentioned the huge swaths of gameplay. Well, she's talking through most of that. You know, come on, just hold on a little bit longer. Just a few more seconds, Lara. Okay, now. Okay, now go here. Okay, I need to get up there. Oh, this is so difficult. You know, she's talking to herself a lot throughout the course of the game, to the point where it kind of got distracting, especially since in most cases it felt like tutorializing. And it's like, okay, I don't need you to tell me to hold on until I'm over the thing I'm going to fall onto, game. <laughs> I have played a puzzle platformer before. I got this, you know? Again, maybe there's just a setting I missed to, to make her talk less. I don't, I don't know. I'll, I'll I'll accept the possible blame on that one. But it's probably the only thing I didn't like about her character. What I did like most about her character is that she's the kind of person who isn't happy with sitting on her laurels. We start the game off with Laura going through counseling and rehabilitation for all the crap she went through in the last game, and that's logical. You know, too often we tend to look at works of fiction and the horrible crap that people go through and just sort of assume that it's natural. Whereas here in real life, people can go through much less and much not as severe, not as bad, and still come out of it horribly scarred and suffering from post-traumatic stress. Speaking as a sufferer, of post-traumatic stress syndrome, and I've had to go through that twice in my life now. It's the kind of thing that I feel is very underrepresented and very misrepresented. Of course, that is also true with most mental illnesses in fiction, so I suppose this is not a unique thing to this. I mean, look at how many people misrepresent schizophrenia, for example, or uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder, just to name two very obvious ones. But the point being, I liked the fact that she was legitimately suffering from this, and I love the fact that the counseling was bullcrap. Now, I'm admittedly a little bit biased against shrinks in real life. And I'll admit that freely. And I have my own reasons for that. And I'm not going to get into that. It, it mostly has to do with the fact that it feels weird trying to get help from a stranger who only cares about me because of how much I'm paying them. But in this game, it's even more insidious than that because the, the, the counselor... The, the, the rehabilitation, the, the shrink, is actually being paid by someone else to basically encourage her to go out there and resolve this in order to push her along this path so that the Trinity can follow her and deal with this. Now, I love this because it speaks to the character that Lara actually has, that Lara is not someone who will sit on her laurels, that she will do, that she will take action, that by literally working through her issues, is how she resolves her issues. You'll notice she almost, pretty much overcomes her post-traumatic stress throughout the course of this game. Not by sitting and having a chat, and not by taking pills, and not by doing art classes or whatever. Not that those are invalid, but they are invalid for her. She needs to do and so completely unintentionally, the Trinity pushes her into actually getting over her own issues and finding herself. And I find something wonderfully ironic about the symmetry of that. And, and, and of course, as she goes through the game, she becomes more attached to people. She learns more. She understands more about her dad, about the organization and the world around her. And what does she do? She doesn't go crying and running off and shrinking. Instead, what she sees is a problem that she can resolve. And she says... I know how to do that. And wouldn't that be so comforting to someone like Lara Croft to be able to have a demonstrable puzzle in front of her that she can take effort to go forth and solve when in fact the puzzle that she is solving is herself. It's a nice touch and I very much enjoy that. I also have to say, just as a quick aside, huge props to the voice actress for Lara Croft. I I don't have anything else to add to that. It was just good stuff. Let me check my notes here really quick. I believe I'm basically done. I suppose that is effectively it. I do uh, hope you've enjoyed my Outsider's Perspective on the Rise of the Tomb Raider, and I will be seeing you guys next time.